the goal of my podcast is a conversation. I would like everybody who comes on to feel like they are having coffee in my kitchen. I am not interested in talking about the weather or sports or politics. Those things might happen and come in naturally to the conversation, but um, I like to do a deep dive on a broad variety of subjects. I am someone who lives in uh, Malden. I am a member of the board of directors for Malden Access TV. I believe in this uh, organization as a resource to our community, um, bringing the community together. Uh, typical day, I am driven by curiosity. I like to take things apart and put them back together, dryers, door handles, and ideas. I value directness as well as kindness in life or exercise class, which I can't say that I go to a lot of those. I will be moving in the opposite direction of the crowd, and that is not on purpose. My family is nice enough to leave all the drawers in the house open for me to push in so that I can feel useful. I live in uh, the Linden section of Malden with a large man with a heart of gold, a wildly waving paws, and a tween who sings like an angel but cannot remember to wear her own coat home from school. I also live with a greyhound named Arnie who likes crispy bread. My guest today is going to be Rebecca Brooks. Rebecca is uh, a member of the Malden Writers Collaborative, and that's how I know her. Uh, she is a southern transplant to the New England area. So Rebecca grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, where her family often took trips to the library for reading material each week. Her mother would devour books so quickly, and she passed on that love of literature to her, which is, I suppose, why it makes sense that now she's a high school English teacher working on two novels of her own. We were fortunate enough to hear some of her work, and we actually workshopped some of her work at the Malden Writers Collaborative. Um, I invited her on today so that we could talk about memoir. We ended up talking about what it's like to be a transplant um, from the South to the North, um, and we talked a little bit about her lovely uh, daughter, who's two, and um, uh, her family. And um, we definitely talked about writing. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. This is episode two, Hi Felicia podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan. My guest today is Rebecca Brooks. Hi, Felicia. <laughs> Thanks, Rebecca. So Rebecca was nice enough to come and uh, talk to me on this cold Saturday morning. We're in the basement of Malden Access TV, and it is frigid, and she has a lovely down winter coat on, so I'm admiring that right now. I know Rebecca from the Malden Writers Collaborative, um, and she has been nice enough to agree to come on. We're going to have a conversation today about writing about memoir. Um, we were just chatting a little bit about the yellow wallpaper. Maybe we'll get into that. So anything you'd like to say to start off? I'm just very happy for the opportunity to talk about writing and a little bit about my story. Awesome. So um, Rebecca and I met because she is a new member to the writing, writing group this year, and we actually just workshopped one of her pieces, which was really amazing. It was a family uh, memoir, and it's going to be told in stages, starting with gra your grandmother. Yes. With your grandmother, your mother, and then you. And who knows, maybe your daughter will add to it. That's my second memoir. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, one of the reasons I was interested in having you on today was uh, because I also write nonfiction. And um, 
I think it's an unusual thing when you're writing about your life story or your family's stories. It came up in the workshop about sort of how much is truth and how much is a remembrance and how much is retelling. And when you're looking back at someone else's history, you're sort of pulling threads together. Yes. And you really have to do a lot of research and a lot of digging through old letters or talking. I did a lot of talking with my mom and what she remembered and and pulled from that and tried to piece it together because my grandmother's no longer with us. So yeah, it's hard to kind of put the pieces together when I'm doing this now. And (laughs) what do you think she would have thought about you writing a book about her? Honestly, I'm I'm always torn with this idea in my head because I know she was a very private person, a very shy person, and there's things in the memoir that made her very ashamed to know about her past and know about her family. And I don't know how she would feel about me writing about that and letting other people know about it. But at the same time, she was a lover of literature, and I think she would have supported me in telling it in a way that was honest and not judgmental. Mm. And I think that's one of the things you hit the nail on the head that a lot of folks who write autobiography or biography or even memoir struggle with is um, when I'm talking about other people, family members or people in my past, um, like, where will the judgment come from? Yes. Um, will they be unhappy with what I've said about them? And I think there's there's a bravery in that experience. Yes. And it was interesting because when it was being workshopped, it was you could hear some of the judgment yeah. of, about some of the characters because they didn't know at the time um, that it was a memoir. So that was maybe my mistake. I should have told them ahead of time. But you could hear that judgment coming from the reader. And so I definitely plan on going in and adding and tweaking things so that it doesn't come off so harsh because there's mm-hmm. a lot of scandal right from the very beginning. Um, so stay tuned. <laughs> I, you know what? One of the things that I was impressed with, the work, um, especially being it being multi-generational, is uh, the bravery that it takes to, you know, talk about it in sort of a public way and having it workshopped. Having my work workshop last year, I found that interesting too because people feel very free with the commentary because that's yeah. what we're encouraging in yes. the group. And we want that. And it was great. Right. Yes. But also it's sort of like, like you're talking about me or you're talking <laughs> about my family members and like it's not a character. It's not abstract. Right. And for some folks, I think they've, they, not, not, you know, not judging them, judging us, but it's more of, um, I think they're so into the story, Mm -hmm. they want answers to the questions that they're proposing, as well as uh, judging some of the factual things that have, have happened and why they happened that way. Right. Like, I mean, I'm not giving too much away when I say that my grandfather was 21 and Mm -hmm. my grandmother was 14. And she eloped with him and got married at the age of 14 and had my mom at 15. And so that dynamic of a 21-year-old with a 14-year-old in our society today especially, it's very – it lends itself towards more judgment. So I definitely 
valued that feedback because now I know I need to go in and make Bobby not seem so much like a creep. (laughs) Right. Because he wasn't. He adored her and worshipped the ground she walked on. And my grandmother was an old soul. She was maybe physically only 14, but she was beyond that in in years. Yeah. And and I think from the outside, we all judge. We can all have the ability to judge another's relationship. And just as you described, I think there's more complexity to that relationship. It wasn't just that she was 14 and he was 21 and he had a truck and he was the way out. They wouldn't have had the longevity that they had. And as you said, they wouldn't have had the aspects of their relationship where he he really valued her and and she and she valued him he you know he yeah. per, perhaps he offered some stability or or vice versa you know who knows she was ready to grow up and have a family mm-hmm. and she got that with him and you know they were together until she passed away and then even after she passed he carried her picture with him everywhere and mm-hmm. he was a big time car fan and on his dashboard right below the speedometer was the last picture that she had had made of her. Um, So he would look at her every time he'd get in his car and go anywhere. So it was a love story. It is a love story. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely need to develop that more (laughs) so that people don't think he's a creep. (laughs) Well, you know what? People may or may not always have that. And that has a little probably more to do with them. Right. But I think as you flesh the story out, it will be a lot more about, like, why did that relationship work? Right. You know, what was it about him that she found so compelling? But I don't don't think you have to... Uh, change the story that much because the way the story was written and the way we read it was from her perspective. Exactly. Yes. So it wouldn't have necessarily been about um, the inner workings of their relationship if that necessarily wouldn't be the kind of person that she would be that right. to tell you that kind of stuff. Right. Because as I mentioned, she was a very private person um, and didn't show a lot of emotion. Mm-hmm. My mom when I was talking to her about it, she said that she can only remember maybe 10 times in the many decades that she knew my grandmother that she can remember outwardly seeing emotion from her. Wow. So, yeah, she was a very stoic and private person. Yeah. So how do you, when you're writing about that, how do you get into the mindset of somebody like that? Like, are there aspects of your personality that are like that as well so you can empathize or? Uh, I tend to be the quite opposite. I'm an open book. (laughs) So the way I'm viewing writing this particular memoir is giving her that voice that maybe she was too scared to use. I love that. So I find it more of a she's speaking through me. And I think that absolutely there's there's events and things that we handle similarly, especially since it's one family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how we deal with tragedy and how we deal with success and how we go through life with a little bit of humor. I think that tends to be the universal that goes through her story, my mother's story, and my story. And so I find telling her story, even though some of these things are scandalous or shameful in her eyes, I'm trying to tap into the reality of this is who she was, this was her life, and this is how she dealt with it. I love that idea, too. This is something that I've thought of for a while. 
in the way that you approach it reminds me very much of like a social scientist kind of viewpoint. We know from DNA that we pass genetics down through mm -hmm. our, our generations, but they also think that we can definitely pass family traits mm -hmm. and we can also pass trauma through mm -hmm. generations, which I find fascinating and also not disheartening, but sort of like help me explain my story. Like looking at, you know, what my parents went through or what challenges they had oh, yeah. or perhaps what traumas they suffered. And then looking at their parents and perhaps even going back one more generation. Is, is any of that resonate with you? Yes, I think I think it goes back to that word universal and the idea that we are all human and there's something that stays with us that's passed through family, through histories, through experiences. And, you know, my my mother certainly has a certain humor and wit about her. And she's always saying how my grandmother was even wittier and smarter than her and you know, I tend to be a little more crass sometimes, but sometimes I'm like, I have that same wit. <laughs> I can be just as scholarly and funny. Um, but also how we face the the hardships in our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, what my great-grandmother always said was, what can't be cured must be endured. Mm. Um, and that's that strength we have to find it somewhere because, as my grandmother would say every day above ground is a good one yeah so we can either cry or we can laugh so we laugh our way through the hard times or we lean on each other and we can do both yeah <laughs> and there's been a lot of hardship in our lives so knowing that you know we all are going to face this and, and how are we going to face it and mm -hmm. I think that tends to be the universal part that comes through when I'm writing my novel is how she faced her hardships and then how my mother faced her hardships, mm -hmm. and then how I face my hardships. Yeah. One of my um, favorite, it's like a broken, it's part of a quote, but uh, one of my favorite sort of the mantras that keep me moving forward is I'm stronger in the broken places. Mm. And um, I broke a leg when I was in my late 20s, and it was like the first time I'd had like a serious injury. And uh, it took a long time to recover from it, and I was very... I was shocked and kind of traumatized and also angry at myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took a long time to heal, and I was having a massage therapist work on the leg because it was really bothering me. And I was kind of lamenting that I was damaged in some way. And she said, you know, every time you break a bone or any kind of injury in your body, you develop a scar tissue. But Specifically with a bone, the bone will feed new bone, so the part that's broken actually becomes stronger, mm -hmm. more melded together, more mended. Mm -hmm. And I think I've liked that metaphor. It's a metaphor, right? Yeah. I like that <laughs> metaphor uh, for hardship or trauma for our, in our lives, Th that idea yeah. that there might be a scar, but if we do some work, if we like generate some healing in that area... It's also the thing that makes us stronger. It gives us it gives us resilience. Yes, definitely resilience. I love Lucille Clifton, the very famous poet. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. No. Um, she has a beautiful poem. And at the end of the poem, she ends it with, won't you celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. 
Yeah, I love that. And I love that idea. So every day I'm just like, you know what? <laughs> Bring it. I'm still here. Lucy Clifton? Lucille Clifton. Lucille. Mm-hmm. We're going to put her poem up on the website or the webpage okay. afterwards because it sounds beautiful. It's a wonderful poem. How did you find her? I remember studying um, in my undergraduate. I was an English major. And I remember taking a few different women's writers courses, mm-hmm. American poetry, British poetry, a variety of poetries. Um, so I think it was in my women's literature class that I came across Lucille Clifton. And the other poem that we studied that made me fall in love with her was Homage to My Hips. And it was all about her magical hips that do not fit in small places. I think I've heard yes. that poem before. It's a beautiful poem. Awesome. Um, so she's a great writer. Very nice. Um, I was going to ask you how you came up the, with the idea of writing the story that you started. For me, it's like writing is a catharsis. So when my grandmother did pass away, that's when I first said, I need to write her story. I need to tell her story as a way to connect more with her, but also as a way to have her live on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I was thinking about it and you know, my life continued on, I thought, why not add my mother's story? Because there's a lot of similar things there. And then I was like, why not add my story? And then one of the things about the work is there's this runner throughout that bad things are going to happen on Thursdays. Mm -hmm. Most often they happen on Thursdays. That doesn't mean they won't happen any other day. But my grandmother was the one who kind of figured that pattern out. Small things like, you know, you're tire went flat so now you got to get the tire changed and you're late to work or whatever up to big things my mother lost a child and that child was hospitalized on a Thursday Mm. and the only reason she didn't pass away that Thursday was because they had to keep her on life support for 24 hours legally before they could take her off but she was hospitalized on a Thursday so we range from smaller tragedies to bigger ones Um, and that's one of the runners throughout the book Mm. is these things keep happening and they usually happen on Thursdays. If it happens on Wednesday, we call it Thursday Eve. (laughs) Um, if it happens on Friday, we're like, that's just lingering a little bit longer, but usually it happens on Thursdays. And then it's also a matter of, we expect bad things are going to happen, but we also know that we will overcome them Mm. and it's how we overcome and continue, um, and how we find peace with that. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, I so you don't have much of a discernible accent, but I know that yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> if you get me on the tirade, I'll have one. <laughs> you have a lovely lilt in your voice. Thank you. Um, so you are a transplant. Yes. Um, how long have you been in the Northeast, and where did you? Where did you originate from? So my husband and I moved here to Massachusetts um, nine years ago almost. We Mm -hmm. moved here in 2010, July of 2010. Is he a transplant as well? He's also a transplant, yes. We are both originally from South Carolina. He has a much stronger accent than mine. I grew up in the city. (laughs) He grew up in the country, so (laughs) we always joke. But yes, he and I both moved here. Um, I originally wanted to move to New York. He wanted Boston. You can see who won that. <laughs> but interestingly enough, his grandfather is from North Reading. 
and oh. his grandfather had three other brothers, and they all stayed up here and had families up here. So my husband had always traveled back and forth with his family um, because his grandmother and grandfather would come up here during the summers and see his family. So he already had a connection here, and it was nice knowing that we wouldn't be completely alone when we moved all the way from the south up here to Yankee country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was one reason why we decided to come to Massachusetts. Um, we've been living in Malden specifically for six years this March. We just bought, we bought our house six years ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Over in the Maplewood area. Are you in Maplewood? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I live in Linden, Linden Square. Okay, yeah. Just on the edge of um, Revere. Yeah. Well, a friend, my um, my stepdaughter is 12, and she was giving a new friend a tour of the house in the neighborhood. And we live um, near the squ- not next door, but near right. the Squire. I don't know if you know. Yes. And so she's I shop at that stop and shop that's right there. As we drove by, she goes, and that's a that's a place. We won't talk about that place, but it's not. It's like, I don't think she said strip club. I don't know that she would necessarily refer to it as such, but I think she said, we don't go in there. Right. Like, that's not a hand place that we go. But that's our movie theater, and that's our stop and shop, and that's the Squire. We don't go in there. <laughs> Um, because a lot of people, if they know Lyndon, they're like, oh, yes, yeah, close to the squire. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how has it been being a transplant into New England as well as being into Malden? So there's definite, there was definitely a little culture shock mm-hmm. when we first moved here. Y'all are a little more free with the language. <laughs> oh, we are. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, down south we don't pro- we don't use profanity, <laughs> at least not in public. Okay. We have euphemisms instead, um, like it's hot as Hades. We love that one. So uh, the one that I love is "Bless her heart." That's a good one because it can either be a sweet grandmotherly tender, oh, or, or it can be a it's a burn huge burn. What's oh, a good burn? But you know. The absolutely most insulting thing that a Southern lady would ever say to you is, that's nice. That's equivalent to <laughs> I F-U. got chills when you said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want a Southern lady to say that because then it's like, whoo, you made her mad. Yeah. Um, so definitely, you know, a little bit of culture shock with that, a little bit of a faster pace up here. Oh, yeah. And just... Oh, my gosh. I, I think I had, like, a panic attack the first time I went into Dunkin' Donuts because they were like, what do you need? And I'm like, wait a minute. The guy's standing right in front of me. He hasn't finished ordering yet. And they're looking at me to get my order. I don't know. There's, there's a Mexican restaurant in um, in Boston, in the Somerville area, that's, like, known for their burritos. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally am not a fan of them. But they do that. They're, like, the third person in line, yeah. and they're already like, "What? what is it? What do you what, – what? And I'm like, I haven't even looked at your array. Like, I need a second here. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's okay to, like, have your order in your head and ready to go. But, like, I'm glad you're efficient. But, like, like give me a little give time a here. <laughs> yeah. I may not – I may want to change it up a bit. Like, yeah. I don't know yet. Calm yourself. The other thing is down south, like, you get to know people. Everyone wants to know you. So it doesn't matter if it's the person taking your coffee order, if it's the person in the drive through window. They're going to ask you, how's your day going? You might even strike up a little bit of a relationship if you frequent the place often. They know your order, but they also know how your grandmother's doing, how your son's doing, <laughs> where you're off to that day. Like, you build more relationships with these people. It's much more personable mm-hmm. than up here. It's kind of like... 
everyone's a stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not to say people aren't friendly up here because people are very friendly and very welcoming. And we have a great group of friends that we have very strong ties. We know that if we're in trouble or need anything, they're they're there to help us as soon as we need it. We have great neighbors. They're the same way. So I think, especially because the winners up here can be so harsh, really <laughs> once harsh. you're in a group, you're you're in that group yes. and you've got each other's backs. So I love that about living up here. And as far as Malden and impressions of Malden, I love the more city-type living, even mm-hmm. though I'm not in Boston. Yep. I still have a, a city-esque feel. But I live over in Maplewood, so my neighborhood is very quiet and cute with, like, all the little houses in a row. Yep. And we all have our little flags out. And so you kind of have the best of both worlds. Um, Malden's is also a very diverse community, yeah, which I am thrilled with because, you know, I have a daughter. And I want her to grow up understanding different cultures, different yeah. ways, different how um, different people celebrate different holidays and how at the same time we're all together we're all human we're all yeah here so um I love the diversity here yeah I think it's great me too I had um I grew up in the south shore of Boston so it was very homogenous and I was itching to get out very very young on and I moved into the city and never left so mm-hmm. I'd lived in Boston for like 20 plus years it was very diverse it was yeah. like really I didn't have a car for a long time which was nice mm-hmm. so it's a kind of a similar feel here, here in Malden because it is so diverse you got the bike path so you can mm-hmm. bike around if you need to the bus and the T work pretty well weather permitting yeah <laughs> Uh, my uh, husband takes the tea every day. So, yeah, he, he loves that. He can just hop on the train, and he's in the city, and he's good to go. Your daughter is four? Two and a half. Two and a half. Sorry. That's I made okay. her much older than she is. <laughs> she so, thinks she's older than she is. So she's not in the, in the schools yet. We're hoping to start in the fall at the Early Learning Center. Nice. Uh, we're just waiting on the paperwork process for her because she's a little special case. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And you teach you, – do you teach in Malden? You don't. I teach, but I teach in Stoneham. You so teach in Stoneham. two towns over. Yeah, very close. I'm only 12 minutes from work, which is great. Oh, nice. Yeah. And the, um, and you teach high school? Yes, high oh school gosh. English. Sophomores God and bless seniors. you. <laughs> um, how, how do you find that group of kids, that age group to work with? I love it. I love – because you're a special person. <laughs> <laughs> I need a more stimulating conversation every day than get your finger out of your nose, Johnny. <laughs> like yeah, I, can't, yeah, yeah. I can't I love little kids. Don't get me wrong, but I can't can't teach little kids. Plus I love literature and I want to be able to talk about literature and granted there's a lot more I have to cover when I'm teaching sophomores especially. We have MCAS here in Massachusetts yep. that they take that year, but you know, we do study things like Lord of the Flies and To Kill a Mockingbird, which I'm like, hey, I'm from the South. Let me fill you in on something. I love that book. It's a great book. Um, we do a lot of argument and rhetoric. So I just I love the content. Um, and I love that age because I'm lucky I have sophomores. They, they've already been through high school a whole year, so mm-hmm. they know the ropes there. A little more maturation has set in. Are they like 14 and 15? 15, 16. 15, 16. Yeah. And they're all learning to drive, and they're so excited to get their driver's license and their freedom, and they're just sweet. 
And then my seniors are all, oh, my gosh, which college am I going to go to? I'm not, which one do I want to get accepted in? And I'm fortunate that I get to teach AP seniors. Oh, that's nice. Um, it's wonderful. So we really get to explore a lot of the literature that's fun. But it's also a matter of, like, who are you going to be when you leave here? And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm here to help you not need me anymore. Like, that's my... That's how I see my job. That's what a good parent does, too, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we had been talking about the Yellow Wallpaper. Do you read – have you read that with your senior? AP? Yes. It is one of the short stories I give them. Um, we actually – we do a small unit before reading Crime and Punishment. And the overarching idea is like the idea of justice and – who determines just it, what's just and what's unjust mm-hmm. and who determines what's a crime, who determines what's punishment. So we read Trifles, which is a play by Susan Glaspell, where a woman murders her husband because she's basically been driven insane and he's never... Um, is it modern or is it... Night, it actually was first produced in Provincetown. I, I can't remember exactly, but early 1900s. Okay. Um, so a little bit later than the yellow wallpaper, but not by much. But she, her husband kills her bird, so she kills him. She snaps and kills him. And so we talk a lot about gender and the idea of, you know, the men are rummaging the house looking for the evidence of her committing the murder, and the women are the ones who stumble across the evidence, and the men, you know, ignore them because they think they're just looking at trifles. Hence the title. So that's what leads us to read The Yellow Wallpaper because it's the idea of, you know, a woman who is trapped, not only physically, but mentally as well. Um, and so we dive into the, the text there. It's such an interesting story. You guys happened to discuss it as part of uh, one of the workshops that I wasn't at for the Writers Collaborative. But I went back and I reread it actually just this morning because I had read it uh, in college, I want to say in a feminist literature class. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so enraged by it, (laughs) like really enraged. I found it fascinating. Like not enraged, but like enraged in a way where I empathized a lot with it. Right, right. That idea that you don't know your own mind or you're being told what you know isn't true. And I remember one of the parts of the conversation that we had in the class about this was, was she really, what was her psychological issue? Mm-hmm. Like, was she being, one of the theories was that uh, there was mold in the house and she was mm-hmm. actually being driven insane by the mold because mold can create behavioral issues. Right. Um, and I remember thinking like, well, that's like the least of this lady's issue. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like whether she's been affected by mold or not is not the problem here. It's the fact that she has one of the things I think I really identified with was the idea that you know your own mind, but you've talked yourself out of what you know. Because everyone around you has told you otherwise. Yes. And the everyone in this particular case being men and men in authority. He's her yes. husband. He's her doctor. Right. So it's like, hmm. And her her brother is a doctor. Her brother's a doctor, yeah. The maid is also in on it yeah. because she's she's believing that 
you know, this, it's like a label that we've slapped on her and that we've, this is what we do with a lot of people. We slap a label on it and this is what you are. Right. Sometimes our family does it. Sometimes a medical professional does it based on a symptom. Sometimes it happens in a relationship. You become the fill in the blank Mm -hmm. and that's who you are. That's the only thing that you are. And it's, it's so tough when you then assume that as well. So you're working against your own. Right, because you trust the experts. You trust yeah. the others over yourself. And especially, the, you know, that's kind of what we talk about when we te- when I teach this in connection to the other play is she's a woman in this society where she has no power. She has no ability ability to question her authority. Her husband can pretty much do whatever he wants. And she questions internally, but can't admit it or question externally. And I think that's part of what's going on with her mental state. It's it's, uh, huge with this notion that's been come up recently, especially with, I think, the president uh, of gaslighting. Oh, yeah huge like no 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 that thing you think that thing you just said no no it's not that thing it's it's oh you silly goose yes are you are, i think at one point he calls her a little girl so it's, yes. it is demeaning in that way yes you don't know you don't know oh it's okay little girl just be a good little she's girl she's not a lot she also she's a grown woman she has a child yes <laughs> you know, she's not a little girl well it, the other thing i think i remember being part of the discussion was is she suffering from postpartum well, that's actually why she wrote it was um, as an indictment against this thing called the rest cure. I'm not sure if you're if you guys talked about that in your class, um, but she did suffer a severe bout of postpartum depression, and I can't remember the doctor's name who prescribed it, but the idea that she couldn't have any kind of intellectual life. She was forced to have her child with her at all times. She was to never pick up a pen and write. She wasn't to read or she had no outlet. I'm like, that would be enough to drive any woman crazy, let alone if you'd had a kid. So that was why she wrote it was to be a, hey, nope, that doesn't work. Yeah. It's interesting how, okay, so it may or may not be this overt anymore. It it may be still over in places or in pockets or in abusive relationships or what have you, but it is very subtle how we are dismissed. Oh, yeah. Very subtle. I think the new term for that now is microaggression. <laughs> A little bit. And I kind of hate that term, and I hate the idea of that thing, but it it's true. I think there, and there's – so there's – I'm of two mindsets. Mm -hmm. There's this sense that we all come to whatever situation with our own sense of responsibility as an autonomous human being. We're responsible for sort of what happens behind our eyelids and in our head. Mm -hmm. Knowing that we have a certain lens, we might have a certain sensitivity to something, we might take something perhaps the way it's intended or the way it's not intended. And we could personalize almost anything. You could personalize someone walking down the street away from you to mean something about you or not true what they think about you true however there is a very overt and subtle or sometimes covert and subtle thing that happens in our society about how we dismiss people yes it could be based on race it could be based on what we assume their gender to be 
but it definitely, I can only speak to how it happens to women because I am a woman. Right. So I, I just find, and now, you know, I think you're of a different generation than I am. But now as I age, I find it is very um, more and more happening as I get older, I find, oh, yeah, like, maybe I'm not as cute as I once was. <laughs> maybe I don't have a certain, like, allure as I once did. However, I can't necessarily assume that that's what I'm getting back or not getting back is because right. of that reason. I suspect sometimes it is, but it's... You don't know. Yeah, you don't know. it's not overt, like you said. It's not in your face. Has this uh, work made you think at all in your life how these things come up? About like um, being gaslit or, you know, not listening to yourself or? Um, I mean, I, I tend to be very aware. So I think I can, I mean, again, I teach argument and rhetoric. So I'm, I'm always analyzing and in my head aware of what's going on and why and what's their purpose and mm-hmm. what are they doing. And I'm an English teacher. I'm an English person by nature. I'm going to analyze the words and the multiple ways those words could be meant or interpreted. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm a little more aware, I think, than other people. But that might be because I've read so much Mm -hmm. and I've been exposed to so much. Um, So I think, yeah. Do you find being a mom has changed that for you? As far as what I'm like being aware of. Yeah. I mean, well, how you advocate for yourself, maybe how you advocate for her. Well, yeah, I have to advocate for her a lot. Um, I am in a unique situation because my daughter has special health needs. She actually um, has a genetic condition known as cystic fibrosis. Um, so my whole world <laughs> is completely different than what it was two and a half years ago before mm. this. Um, so I do have to advocate for her. I do have to teach her to follow along with her prescribed regimen. Um, And if people don't know what cystic fibrosis is, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. So from my understanding, she has a genetic mutation that doesn't allow a certain protein to develop correctly that then doesn't allow certain fluid salt, I think it is. Um, certain fluids through the cell wall, which makes her mucus thick and globby as opposed to thin and runny in the human body, even though people hate thin and runny mucus, especially here at cold season. Um, But that's what keeps things moving. So what cystic fibrosis does is over time, the mucus will build up in her lungs. Um, She's prone to certain bacterial infections that won't really do any damage to normal, healthy lungs, but her lungs are basically a petri dish for germs, so they can wreak havoc. Does weather affect her? In a way, yes. So when it's really hot, she sweats more. People with cystic fibrosis lose a lot of salt in their sweat, um, so she has to eat a high-salt, high-fat, high-protein diet, mm. um, to the salt part to replenish what her body loses. So we do very much have to be careful when it's really hot. The other areas of the body affected by CF is um, the pancreas can also become globbed up, which doesn't release enzymes to absorb the food. So that's why she has to eat high-fat, high-protein, and a lot more calories than a normal diet Mm -hmm. um, to help her gain weight because 
good weight gain has shown better lung function down mm. the road. Um, so it's all connected through, you know, that lovely mucus that's in our bodies. Mm-hmm. So for that reason, she does eat basically the opposite of what we've all been told is a healthy diet, but for her, it is a healthy diet. Mm-hmm. Whole milk, whole fat, cheeses, whole milk yogurts, high salt. I add salt to everything. High protein. She loves salmon, which is great. It's got the fat and the protein in it. Nice. So I'm constantly giving her salty snacks. I'm constantly adding butter to everything she eats. I know it sounds so great. Which she landed in the right house because, you know, my southern casseroles are nothing but dripped with butter. <laughs> <laughs> but for her, I worry about specifically food shaming when she gets mm. older and she's in school because I'm I'm worried, especially with the whole push for healthy lunches, which yeah. is, I think, great. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I, I worry that she might get mixed messages. Yeah. Um, and that's where I have to advocate for her and say, this is a healthy diet for mm-hmm. some people, but this is a, a different alternative mm-hmm. diet that's healthy for you because of your condition. And how does she deal with things? Like how is... Like her personality. Oh, my gosh. She is. <laughs> I keep reminding myself that she is going to be one resilient, strong-willed, independent woman when she's older. But right now she's butting heads with me, and yeah. it's a little hard. Yeah, She's very, very high energy. I don't know where she got that from because I could just sit on the couch and read a book all day. But she wants to be outside and run around, which is great for her condition. Yep. Exercise is wonderful. Yep. Um, so she just super energetic. Very independent, very, um, very smart, which they say you get your smarts from your mama. Oh, yes. And she'll let you know when she's not happy with something. Um, she doesn't like to be messed with, which is difficult because we're at the doctor's often because of her condition. Um, Do you feel like you have good um, medical professionals in your life? We are very fortunate that we moved here because... Boston Children's is amazing, and that's where her CF care team is. Is that and it's Boston a team. Children. It's a oh yes, it's yeah. a team for sure. She's got um, a pulmonologist that's on the team, and then she which has, is a doctor that takes care of your lungs. Yeah, uh, yes, or breathing. Um, yeah, I think the heart's part of that too. Okay, pulmonology, but I'm not sure. I'm not 100 percent sure. But they definitely look at the respiratory, the lungs. Um, she has a nurse on that team. We do have a physical therapist because we have to do physical therapy to get the mucus broken up off the walls of her lungs. Yep. Um, there is a social worker, a part of that team. She also sees a gastroenterologist because the digestive system is affected yep. by this. Um, she's seen a hepatologist, which is a liver specialist. And um, eventually when she gets older, they will work on the mental health aspects with her because this is a disease that can lead to high anxiety and depression rates among people with it, rightfully so, because it's a life-shortening disease. Um, current current life expectancy is 47 years old, mm-hmm. um, which is great compared to when she was born. It was just 37. Wow. So just in the two and a half years she's been alive, it's already increased a decade. So there's a lot of hope in the community with the breakthrough treatments and potential cure on the horizon. But um, we do rein that hope in when the reality hits. And this is what we do every day. But, yeah, she's got a great team at Boston Children's. And this is a big generalization, but I have 
uh, family members and other friends who have had, had kids or have kids that have some sort of uh, degenerative illness or critical disease or have been born with something. Mm-hmm. And there's something about these kids. They're amazing. They're like, they are nonplussed by sometimes their own condition because they don't know any different. She's been doing this. They have a born. spirit that is sort of like unbreakable. <laughs> yeah. And they're really, they can be really challenging, like behavior wise, because they don't see any limitations. And yeah. necessarily, parents don't necessarily see a limitation, but you see potentially caution or or, oh, or yeah. things that you want to steer her away from because you know they could potentially be bad for her condition or mm-hmm. things that you want to steer her towards. That right, but it's that idea that they're they just kind of roll with it in a yeah. way that's kind of c- crazy. Like, <laughs> where does that come from? Like, do you think it's do you think it's something innate or is it something conditional? Like, what is it? I'm very much more a fan of um, nurture over nature. I think especially because, in our case anyway, it is such a disciplined regimen mm. that you have to follow. And and because of that, it builds certain character traits within mm-hmm. you, like responsibility, like um, – proper care for your body because mm-hmm. if you don't care for your body you may not be able to get up out of bed the next day like it, yeah. it can be really debilitating um so i think because of how we have to approach life that tends to set her up for those kinds of um characteristics yeah yeah that's amazing how do you take care of yourself in the middle of something like that it's hard um, I try to find my own outlets like reading and writing, mm-hmm. hence my second memoir, <laughs> which is all about her and coming to terms with this life. Mm. So stay tuned. Oh, I'm sure that the, I mean, folks in the community, I'm sure in, in the CF community would probably benefit from it, but there are people outside yeah. of that that would find it so helpful and fascinating right. and also inspiring. You know, thank you, and it's, especially knowing just a little bit of writing that I've read of yours, I'm sure it will have humor. It'll be oh yeah, touching. <laughs> oh yes, I've it'll be poignant. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, decided one of my chapters is going to be written as a mock heroic, and my my objective is to get out of the house in the morning, <laughs> nice. and I must face the toddler. That's how I'm going to refer to her in that chapter. Because getting out of the house in the morning, it takes us about two hours. It's a long process. I'm huge into writing ourselves as a hero in a story. I have a business as a life coach, and part of sometimes the exercise that I have folks write is write a narrative of their story mm-hmm. and write write it as a hero. Use a fairy tale. Use yeah. a comic book character. Use whatever it is and write a day in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the pieces that I had workshop last year with a writer's group was a tale I wrote about going to a job that I didn't love, and I called it the epic of the goat warrior princess. <laughs> yeah. I love, I just love that notion that it's a way of viewing our lives uh, with some sense of um, mastery. Yes. It is a, it is a feat 
to get out of the house in the morning. It's an accomplishment. So it's definitely with a regular two year old. And and even then, you know, put on top of that some mastery. Oh, yes. Of, um, you know, what the regime that is that you have to maintain for her. Six different medicines to administer, PT, getting her dressed, getting her fed. It's all in there. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, I sometimes, and this is, um, this is a bad comparison, but it's it's a way of trying to relate some iota of what you go through. I, I do all I can to like get myself and the dog together yeah. in the morning. Yeah, I know what you and mean. the dog is like at my side, like crying uh-huh. and whining and like you know, and I tell him sometimes, especially when I haven't had any coffee, that I'm just going to put his leash on and put him out on the sidewalk and have somebody pick him up and walk him (laughs) because I'm tired and it's cold and I don't want to go outside. Yeah, it's hard. But, you know, I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier is even though my situation is unique, it's also not. It's universal. We all have these things that we have to face in some form or fashion. Um, and please, please know that I am not comparing oh, care I of I a totally dog <laughs> to a two-year-old with a significant health issue. I understand. <laughs> you're just you're you're making sense of it and how your yes world works. And well, knowing also too that that's like just a little yeah. blip of a snapshot of what people go through right. when they have. They have themselves, they're caring for yeah. a parent, they're caring for a child, they're caring for themselves or trying to care for themselves if they have some yeah. sort of, you know, it, whether it's a mental health issue or a physical issue. It's like, we all have challenges. We're just a normal day. <laughs> we've all, we've <laughs> when it's 20 below, it. <laughs> right? Good Lord. Yeah. Do you have a, fa- a favorite memoir writer? Well, writer, no, but I do have a couple of memoirs that stand out. Of course, Night. By Ely Wiesel. Wiesel, yeah. Just so powerful. And then more recently, The Glass Castle. Oh, God. Um, Love that book. Fabulous, fabulous book. And then I actually just finished reading over the summer, Educated, which was on the 2018 number one bestsellers mm-hmm. list, I think, from the New York Times. Um, fabulous memoir. What was the memoir? Oh, man. She is, I just, I'm impressed. (laughs) She pretty much grew up homeschooled in the mountains, living in a family that was very like doomsday preppers, Mm. never vaccinated, had never stepped foot in a public school or in a school really in general um, until she was 17 years old. Wow. And so she grows Talk about up. culture shock, right? Oh, man. This is an amazing memoir. I highly recommend it. And so she grows up in this life. And um, I think her older brother ended up going to a university. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what sparked the idea that maybe she could go to. And she ends up basically from this background all the way to Harvard and I think Oxford in England. can't remember exactly 100%. Um, but she goes from basically no education to some of the top schools in the world. Um, and just the, the hardships that she faces and the sacrifices she had to make, her family absolutely did not approve of what she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, she had an abusive older brother, um, so she faced domestic violence as well from her family, um, but a really great great read about facing adversity, facing mm. difficulty, overcoming it, and triumphing 
but recognizing what you lose along the way. I think that's the um, point that you were making earlier, too, about the universality of that story um, of overcoming obstacles mm-hmm. and uh, you know, having grown up a certain way, but then challenging a paradigm and trying to find your own path. And it's kind of what we're all doing. Exactly. You know, maybe we don't all write a book about it, but we all are trying to figure out our way. Perhaps it's um, countering against what we grew up with. Perhaps it's celebrating some of the aspects of what we grew up with. Um, I think the most compelling memoirs to me are the ones that they are raw, they're honest. Uh, Sometimes they're harsh, but they are um, unapologetic about where they came from and sort of where they're going. Um, And... I mean, I'm just thinking about the sh- my bookshelves now, and there. I mean, the more traumatic the story, I, f- I, I, I mean, this is going to sound like I'm like, oh, terrible things are wonderful, <laughs> but they're com- it's compelling reading. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. if there's like some guy who was stuck on a boat and ate fish eyes, I want to read that. <laughs> if there's a, there was a book called uh, Blackbird. Mm-hmm. by a woman who had like a uh, biological family and they passed away and then she was raised by the step parent who was in a cult and I mean uh, uh, dibs in search of self um, right. a- I think we're fascinated by how people continue to go on yeah when they are faced with such tragedy yeah and you know it's it's that idea of hope we if they can do it, we can certainly do yeah. it. If, you know, if if we can find a way too, because we're still here. And it's more than um, it's more than like wanting to. For me, at least, it's more than like wanting to see the car crash. It's uh, it is that idea that like there's something more terrible out there that happened to somebody else that like. Oh, you can point to and be like, if they can make it through, I can too, mm-hmm. you know. And maybe my trauma or my past or my history or what's happened in my family is traumatic to me, and maybe it's more or less traumatic to someone else. But there's a lesson there. Yeah, absolutely. It, maybe it's more personalized to me, but if I share that story, maybe it's universal. Absolutely. That's why we read. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I think that's a a shame that some people don't get that message or they only want to stay in one lane or fear or is it ignorance? I don't know what that keeps them from wanting to explore that. I think, well, I'm a teacher here, so I'm just going to say I think they're distracted by other shinier things at the moment. Okay. But, yeah. Because we want things to be easy sometimes. True. True. So we don't necessarily want to have to excavate. Yes. And my my students always ask, they're like, why is it everything we read in English class so depressing? <laughs> and I want to look at them and go, honey, welcome to life. Yeah. We got to get over it. We got to find a way through yeah. it. And, and I mean, there's plenty of... Um, there's plenty of shiny, sparkly things that we can do. We can go out and see a movie that yeah. is, you know, all about whatever superheroes. But, like, the things that are compelling to me, yeah. and it sounds like the things that are compelling to you, they do have a tinge of sadness. They yes. do have a tinge of reality. They do have a tinge of um, maybe morbidity. But, like, that's also part of life. That's that a full-rounded perspective. Yes. And we've got a 
it's safer to explore that through a book. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it because I, I did. did. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was great. Do you have anything else in the final moments that you would like to share? I don't. I just, you know, keep going. <laughs> keep writing. Keep reading. Definitely. Definitely. And we'll look forward to um, more work from you. Uh, do you have a title for your book right now? No, I'm one of those people that I have to finish the thing and then I go back and add a title. Good. So, well, definitely, tuned. I think um, something about Thursdays should be in there. Yes. Not Thursdays, but not what was your grandmother's? She, you had a name for her. Which it was one? like, it wasn't like Nana, it was Mima. 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 That's right. Yeah. Thursdays with Mima. Yeah. It was yes, like, I thought about that, but then I thought, <laughs> no, that's a little close to Tuesdays with Maury. <laughs> Thank you so much. Rebecca Brooks was my guest today on Hi, Felicia. Thanks for joining us. These hips are big hips. They need space to move around in. They don't fit into little petty places. These hips are free hips. They don't like to be held back. These hips have never been enslaved. They go where they want to go, and they do what they want to do. These hips are mighty hips. These hips are magic hips. I have known them to put a spell on a man and to spin him like a top. 